final building with Queen and Danny, Lily, and the Wizard. No Wizard. Because he looks like a lizard. Who? Steve, he's so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> We're back this week and we are not having a guest on this week. It is just the boys. So we do apologize in advance for the significant drop in quality of this week's episode. But we, we do, do have Steve on. That's we do. Guest. We do. So Steve's <laughs> going to kick us off by talking about his prep for this week's race in Melbourne, 70.3 Melbourne. Steve? Um, yeah, I guess you could call it a lack of prep, um, but it's actually worked out really well. I've, I've, um, been to start with i was worried about overtraining again um and then motivation was probably an issue this late in the season but uh i've just nailed key sessions because i was pretty well rested between sessions the volume and intensity has been lower on the off days because i simply didn't i just had a lot on my plate and didn't want to train uh you know if there was a five-hour ride which is a necessary thing or a four-hour ride for an ironman I've been going a bit lower and I've probably averaged about 20 hours a week. So it's still a good amount. Um, and yeah, I'm actually in a good place. seems the key sessions are um, better than I've had last year, this time leading into Bustleton. So yeah, uh, for Melbourne, I think I'm in a good place to probably less fatigue than last year um, from volume. So yeah, I don't know if there's anything else to mention, but. Um, I, think, I think it's worth I think it's worth mentioning that every year that you stack on this base and you build these, you know, you've already done two Ironman preps this year. Um, what would work now wouldn't necessarily have worked for your first Ironman, you know, because you've you've got that deep base and aerobic efficiency that you've built up over years. Um, and so, you know, you could pull this off for a couple of preps and then eventually you're probably gonna have to go back to slogging out some 30 hour weeks to top it back up and and away you go. Yeah, I think Port Mac this year was was terrible prep, um, low volume and just getting sick all the time. But the, I think I was still feeding off of a massive prep this time year last year, and then um, I'm probably right now feeding off that World Chance prep, which was big. And um, now that I've let my body rest between big key days and still nailed the key days, uh, yeah, everything's going really well. So it's, I see these numbers, but then I just listen to the body at, at the moment, which I usually wouldn't do and I'll just rest more than usual but yeah then my break's coming so it's fine I'm not not too worried and things are good when you say you're lacking motivation a bit or you were lacking motivation Steve is it specifically like is it everything general lack of motivation or you're like I still feel like riding my bike but I just don't want to swim uh I think it's all of them yeah I, uh, longer the longer and the more intense it is, um, the less I'm keen. And then I have days where I'm, I was loving it, but in this prep, I think I think after um, two Ironman preps, and then I got real sick. So my breaks this year have not been breaks; they've been in bed, um, sick with the uh, you know the fourth round of antibiotics. So my breaks didn't feel like breaks; it was harder on my breaks. <laughs> so I feel like I, it's just a long season for Aussies. We always start. Well, we have the option to start in February and 
we can go all the way till December and most years I do. And me and Reedy talked about it a fair bit that I haven't actually really had a proper break in since he's coached me, which is a good four or five years. So, um, yeah. Not, not out of it, my doing, more out of your choosing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. So he'll, he'll say, let's rest for this month. And um, and then he, what what is in, you know, training peaks, um, it, my rest is still enjoying training 15 hours a week or something. So you never really got that rest. And I think I just hated the sport after World Champs because you can give this sport so much. And if it doesn't give back, um, uh, yeah, I couldn't talk triathlon for a while there. And now, now I actually enjoy it. I went and did a local race, loved it um still not keen to do massive hours i need my break <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's but yeah it's it's cool it's all coming back i just it's it's been a long season and um i just think i underestimated how much nerd belts um starting a business would um take out of me and the stress that it um, caused at the start um just trying to do iron man cans and thinking a shipment wasn't coming or i was being hacked by some guy that never actually was going to send anything <laughs> and um and basically uh yeah i just underestimated how much time goes into this stuff and because i want to get um you know started on delegating nerd belts to someone else to run it um i want to coach a little less and delegate that um i just want to get started on that stuff so they can be a full-time athlete again because what i've done is go full-time athlete and then took on nerd belts um which is very great successful and i'm proud of it but it but it's now it's a full-time it requires a full-time job sort of one you know at least one two people working on it full-time and my two hours a day is just not good enough so so it's it's a really hard predicament you're in you've got a business that i think has got so much potential um and you don't want to let that go because if it does get set up and the systems are in place then um you can turn around and not have to say yes to shitty sponsor deals. You can be like, I don't need that two thousand dollars. I'm I'm making two grand a day. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like I think, you know, it's some coaches would be like, let it go. These are your peak years. Whereas I look at it as if you can get this up and rolling and the system's in place and then it could be the thing that enables you the stress now could mean stress free Kona attempt in three years that other athletes only dream of. What does yeah. a uh, what does a rest look like for a pro? Like I, it, my maybe it's different for Reedy or Steve between the two. But like, are you talking two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, or just? Well, seeing is this given the name of our show is triathlon therapy. Let's talk about the the therapy side of tri- training. And I think certain athletes like myself, I struggled to take a break. I think Steve's a little bit the same. You, there's just there's a lot of therapy in the training, and I think ideally you want pro athletes especially who've had a huge year you want them to take three four even up to six weeks completely off just not many of us can actually do it and then you build back slowly especially with swim and bike bring back the run once the weights come down a little bit and then um yeah that that would be the ideal but you've also got to realize we're not robots you're managing people and certain people need training to not turn into serial killers (laughs) i think the the most jealous i ever used to get of the professional athletes was probably a few weeks post Coney and see like Reedy and Burks out on their e-bikes because the sponsors would send them one, you know, and they'd be <laughs> like having all day rides on their e-bikes in the off season. And I think we were all kind of back to work and reality. And so like he was still getting his uh, therapy by going out and training still, but it's just, there's no specifics to it. There's no, um, stress of i have to hit these numbers it's just like hey burks get on your bike we're going riding 
and yeah. you, get, you get your therapy and enjoy it. It's yeah. funny, I put on Celine Dion now and I split back through Instagram and just like have big sob sessions looking at how good <laughs> my life used to be. <laughs> Reed, did you ever get jealous though if you're coaching someone when you were a pro and you and they're like, sweet, just done this big Ironman, I'm going to take my break now, I'm not even going to think about triathlon for two months or three months and they come back four months later just frothing and you're like, Can, that's that was the predicament I was in because a few guys were finishing their goals and just had a big break. And I was like, I need a break. I need to do other things. I need life admin to be sorted. And it, and I never, you know, for five years, I haven't done anything life admin. I'm, I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Like I always, you know, I don't think Apo will mind me mentioning, but he's the king of taking a break and he'll just be like, the form starts to dip. And, you know, most people chase it. They'll be like, oh, I just need that one more race, one more race. And he'll just be like, well, it's it's April. I've had a good few months. I'm doing a, the rest of the year off. And um, <laughs> and then he still doesn't sort his life admin. <laughs> he, just play, he just plays Xbox like 16 hours a day. <laughs> but the, but the, the, there is a real gift, like for people that can switch off like that. The Europeans do it really well where they structure their season well. They have a good off season and they peak when they're supposed to peak. Whereas I think the Aussies are a bit, uh, a lot of us who don't do those, that, we're not forced into rest too with hectic winters. So I think it's really common to see a few hit and misses at world champs because of the way we um, structure our year and sort of it's a fine line between peaking and burnout. Structure by design, but right, Reid, like, um, you guys, like for you especially, you'd race like the Australian races and then go to the States or, or Europe during the year or whatever, where it seems like the Europeans, like winter comes and they actually hibernate because of the weather. Yeah, I think it's easy to hibernate when it's when it's snowing outside and yeah. um, and also when you don't have the options that are two hours away to race, that makes yeah. it a lot easier to take an off-season, whereas when you're just like, oh, I could just grab another five, ten grand here, or I could do that, it's like... Your greed gets in the way of common sense sometimes. Well, not even greed. It's just, you know, you like to be comfortable. Yeah. Um, on the uh, Melbourne and Busso uh, being, what, three weeks apart, obviously we know Steve can back up Melbourne um, like he did last year and go to Busso and do well. What about your age groupers? Do you have many doing Melbourne or Canberra and Busso trying to juggle between the two and the three? Yeah, with like Reedy's just had a, a few guys up at uh, Lennox for the week and they just went Noosa, did that race. And then I think most of them were doing WA. So like it's it's hard, like a lot of the time they go to those races and just don't do well. And that's okay as long as they, they, they realise that pre, pre-race. you got to go there with kind of realistic expectations as an age grouper a lot of the time because you, you'd structure your weeks a little bit different to the professionals but um in regards to like say melbourne to wa swim bike you can still you can still get stuck in but i think that the biggest damage you can do is kind of run too hard at the start and then spend say the second half groveling and, and really doing damage where your form goes goes out the window and you've got to spend what should be your taper time basically recovering. Um, I agree. And and the other side of it is the emotional damage of having an, a really deep race. But so, um, you know, we, I'll often talk to the athletes and be like, I don't mind if you use this as your, you know, a really solid hit out leading into your a race, but you cannot, it can't, you know, I, I think 
unless you're Lionel Sanders and have a bottomless pit of suffering, most people can dig deep two or three times a year and you got to you got to pick your your battles, you know. So um, I think that you got to be aware of the emotional toll of racing and it's got to – I think for the guys that live close by that are really fit where the 70.3 won't hurt and the fact now that the shoes that people run in, you, can, you don't get the same level of muscle carnage that we used to get with racing a 70.3. It can be done. It's a little bit risky. Um, high risk, high reward but it can really backfire as well. So I sort of just spell it out to the athlete, let them make the choice, but know that they have to know that there is a level of risk using a event as a, you know, one of your hard sessions going into your A race. Speaking of uh, Noosa, did anyone see Burks blow that lead in the, in the legends race? <laughs> did anyone <laughs> did see he, it? Was he, did he go full all out Ironman pace? He, I don't know, I don't know what he did, but he had a couple hundred meter lead, and he, and he, and he got pipped at about fifty meters to go at the end. So, oh, who oh. beat him? Luke, oh, Will, Luke Willem, to be fair. Oh, okay. Well, Burke was not known for his three minute Ks, but he, he could go four minutes for as longer than anyone, though. So that so looked what, like a good event up there. Um, Noosa's, it's it's turning into a behemoth of a of an event. What did we think of the pro race up there? No, oh. no real surprises with Hayden. No, not was, at all. He was wicked. It was yeah, he was crazy good. I got sent something yesterday saying that um, Matty Hauser rode three hundred and seventy watts and still lost time to him. So I don't know whether that's true or not. Obviously, well, Hayden not. Hayden's position looks super dialed. Um, I would imagine even for the same speed, he would have to push to push the same. Speed is Hayden. I'm, I'm going to say he's probably pushing 30 to 50 watts more anyway, okay. because they they're very different sized humans. Similar to Taylor near in Hawaii, I do love when the ITU guys come across and ride TT bikes and just look like a giraffe <laughs> taking their first steps. It looks so <laughs> they're just putting out so much power and it just does not look at all connected. So uh, Hayden, Hayden looks all right, but some get on and you're like, what is that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah was it- mind, mind you, Steve, you had only ridden a TT bike, and until about a year ago, you looked like that. <laughs> <laughs> Up in the wind, yeah. Um, specifically, the race, yeah, it was um, Ash Gentle. How good. Shout Ooh. out to her. 10, 10 wins up there. Is that um, 10 she's had? Yeah. What's the next closest after that? Five, oh, six? Yeah, I wouldn't have a clue, but it was. Um, yeah, it was that so was your impressive. job. Do some research, Glenn. <laughs> you only got to research the positives, and the positives is she's won it ten. To do any race ten times is just out of control. And she, um, the only the only negative I did see was they only started the men and women a minute apart. It's not that hard to get right. So the slower guys got out of the water with the group of chicks, and they affected yeah. that race. It's um, sorted out. Sorted out. <laughs> Is that a just a? Is that because Noosa, like you said, really, it's so hectic. Like the pros, the pro females were finishing, and you could see people were still getting out of the water in the age group race. Like it just goes all day, doesn't it? Yeah, it's and and but I think you got to know that going into it. You're going up there for almost like the Woodstock of triathlon. It's a festival. You're not going there to have the most fair, safest race ever. Like no disrespect, they're doing the best job they can for the numbers. But you're going there to be a part of something huge. Um, with a great atmosphere and, you know, except for the pros, you want them to have a clean race, but it's uh, it's just the nature of having an event that big. I think what makes Noosa special is the fact it is that big. That's what's really unique about it. 
What about uh, the pros that did Noosa, the, specifically the pro men that did Noosa and now are racing Steve? Not necessarily, we don't have to name names, but, you know, do you think the ones that went deep there, that will, that will suffer in Melbourne because of that? Or is it because of an Olympic and they're so seasoned with that that it should be fine? Probably different yeah, it's athlete, athlete, it's, it's always hard to, it's always hard to say um with cold races you get that real muscle uh the mu- the muscle cell breakdown that makes you you know three four days after the race you're struggling to run properly depending on how well conditioned you are of course the thing with hot races and it was humid up there it's like this weird nervous system fatigue that hits sometimes you know Thursday Friday after um it's whether they shake that or not in time um typically if you can train really easy and get through that 10 days later, you're on fire, but seven days can be a bit close. So we'll see. It's going to make it really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Hayden ran three Oh threes for the 10 K. So yeah. yeah. He'd be used to that pace though, wouldn't he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's, they... that's slow. <laughs> <laughs> I remember running three minute Ks around the track with you just chatting to me, Steve, and I was ready to retire. So um, <laughs> you've, you've definitely got that ability. I still always think you're the one that got away with ITU, um, but that's a whole nother topic. So let's leave that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, the in terms of that race to the week after, it's not so much the specifics of the race. It's how well you treat yourself afterwards, being nurse is a bit of a... A big shenanigan like if you if you went out afterwards and just didn't keep it 100 professional and then also i guess the the travel from noosa to melbourne everyone going through airports at the moment especially if you're slightly fatigued it's a bit of a it's a bit of a risk so that's a great point clint that's why i said it too that i like a tune-up race if you don't have to travel but if you got to get on a flight and you're already immunosuppressed from the hard race your chance of getting sick is very high. (laughs) (laughs) So for the next segment, we're going to be talking about pro athletes that retired too early and age groupers that should have gone pro. Reedy's going to kick us off. (laughs) Oh, I, uh, I think I even brought up this topic and I haven't even thought about it. So. <laughs> I think, I think uh, okay, retired retired too early. Easy one. Um, we've got, I, th- I think someone, Simon Thompson springs to mind. Dan I think he Wilson. was just, that was my next one. Uh, yeah, Dan Wilson was, I, I don't think he realised what money was on the table for how good he was. He came in, did a year of 70.3s, won everything, didn't really leave Australia and um, I just don't think he realised he could have been making making hundreds of thousands of dollars if he just hit a few world champs really well. And uh, so yeah, he's probably my number one who finished up too early and also just stayed in ITU too long. Um, I, and also I'm a big fan of him as a person. Was a very interesting guy and just had that personality and mentality to do really well. Um. Damn it! So do you um, think it? No. So do you think a lot of them really like? <laughs> do you think a lot? Of, um, I think we're all going to have Dan as the only person. No, so <laughs> yeah. do you think a lot of them leave not because they don't love the sport or because they um, aren't enjoying it or whatever, but there's just a bigger 
there's a bigger carrot out there, whether it be like a, a really high paying job or, or family, or they just they just realize that the specific demands are just too much and they for for the reward. And so they go, they they leave early. I think it's different for every athlete. I think in Dan's case, he's pretty clever and was just looking forward to the next challenge. Yeah. Um, but I also don't think he was aware of what people were were making who were doing well in the US. So um you know, I think he was on the on a team. I can't remember what the name of the t- the team was, but it encompassed sort of all the sponsorship that you could get and limited everything else. But he he might have been getting fifteen or twenty grand. I'm totally just speculating. When I honestly believe, if you'd just given it a year in the states, he could have been on two to three hundred grand if he kept racing the way he did. So, um, yeah. Uh, I, then for other people, I think it's the financial stress. Like you, it a lot of people finish up too early because. They can't, they're used to either training and racing full time. The idea of working part time on the side um, is just, they, it's just not really something they want to do. And they finish up too early because it's just the, the constant worry of money. And then the other one, I think, is just family. Like it's very hard. Like if, if you ask me the thing I'm most proud of, and Steve will probably agree with what he's going through, it's I'm most proud that I got all my results while I was raising young children. Um, rest was not a thing and so for some especially if you're used to that it suddenly makes triathlon you got all the hard work with none of the easy recovery stuff and that you watch a lot of other pros enjoy so family often ends people's um careers pretty early have you guys got anyone else you can name that probably finished up a bit early tim reed <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm not retired. I'm coming back at forty. I've told everyone that. <laughs> um, not, not off the top of my head, but you do see a lot of, a lot of people leave because of the financial burden, right? Where they like, unless you're incredibly talented, trying to work a part-time job, and then mix it with the guys who are who are well financially um, backed to do their job, being triathlon, it's very hard to, to make it. So, I can't think of anyone specifically off the top of my head, but. Um, I do feel like a lot of people walk away just slightly just before they make it because it's just become too much. Like, yeah, they're incredibly motivated. They're incredibly um, driven, but then it just becomes too much and they were so close yet they go and take another another option. Is I, this, I feel, sorry, I was just going to say, I, is, is this the best time to be in triathlon in terms of being able to make money or... Is it just more competitive? So sort of the same thing. I think it's I think it's a great time for long course. I think it goes in waves. Um, there were some big Middle Eastern races that paid really well when I was going really well. There was um, non-drafting and ITU races at high V, which was a million dollar prize purse. Um, there's been it just comes and goes in waves, but I wouldn't say it's the greatest. I wouldn't know how to weigh that up. I'd say when I was really just starting to get into it the non-drafting scene in the US where you could race an Olympic distance one week at 70.3 the next, there was a lot of races to just, yeah, and sponsorship was fantastic for people. So I don't know is the short yeah. answer, but I think I, I I don't think it would be. I would say 10, 12 years ago was probably the peak, um, but it'll come and go. So I do think to- a lot of the, I think a lot of the ITU women don't move to long course soon enough. I think Emma Moffat, Ash Gentle should have moved probably five years earlier. Um, a lot of those pros, I think, stay in ITU too long um, when they could be really cleaning up, you know, so or 
and hopefully if they have a federation they can actually that is understanding they can actually mix the two but that doesn't seem to happen too often so what you said read um sponsorship ready how it comes in waves i do feel like like the early 2000s were crazy like when case west is probably a good example you know mm. really good money for a lot of people and then they kind of dip in and out and i do feel like hopefully we're on the uh on the up again for for athletes so. well big shout out to the pto they've changed the landscape completely and yeah i mean the case with stays were huge guys would get guys weren't even looking at the prize money they're just like well prize money is nice pocket money but i know i'm going to make 15 20 grand for this podium or this win in bonuses and if you get six or seven you know plus your base salary from sponsors um heaps of guys were making good cash so and and ladies but it's changed yeah it changes i think that the, the switch now is that it's very prize money dominant um but as long as the money's there i think it's it's pretty cool i'd love to see um I, i'd love to I, I like that things are changed that, that pto are putting pressure on other companies too now to lift the standard a little bit so um top 15 in kona is a huge hugely positive change as opposed to when it was just 15 to get uh, sorry the top 10 to get paid um I believe prize money's gone up too. I might be wrong on that, but plus yeah. the the series that they're doing, right? It's and the series exactly, yeah. yeah. So again, I think it's the the Ironman never had any pressure. They were the kings. There was no need for them to lift the prize purse, and now um, because people still race, their races were selling out. And but now the PTO, I think, have have really changed the game and put a little bit of pressure on. And big fan of that. Everyone, everyone pushes each other so that's good you guys know when a, a pro that has retired can go back and race fun as an age group yeah i i asked um sammy Betton to look into this and he asked a lot of people at triathlon australia and no one really knew so <laughs> yeah, it doesn't that's... i don't think there's any strict rules on it i think i thought it was like you had to have a two to three year gap but i don't think you do i think just you probably want to wait till the next membership cycle and then sign up as an age grouper. But the level of hate I would get if I went back to age group racing, even though I'm only training <laughs> seven or eight hours a week. It's, when I, fi uh, when I yeah. finally get dusted by Reedy at some race in the 40 to 44 age group at some <laughs> gravel race out the back of New South Wales, I'm going to put the biggest rant on social media about getting beat it's by like, a pro. You know, I don't done get it. it for like, just, just, just because I chose to take a life of risk and go and <laughs> go and spend 10 years as a pro um always wondering when i'm gonna when it, you know how secure my life is and when it's all gonna end it's a huge risk for pros to do that and if you look nothing, like if nothing's fair in life if i put in 10 years of really good training and i come back and doing eight to ten hours a week and i'm beating you who haven't put in the 10 years of training well Suffering your jocks. <laughs> Doesn't mean I can't come up with a really crafty Instagram post to just whinge about it to make myself feel better. <laughs> uh, if you look at um, what you're saying, like the top age group is at a lot of races. A lot of them have a lot less overall stress in their life than a lot of the pros. Like the guys who are trying to make it as pros, like the, the financial stress that we were talking about, the juggling of other things as opposed to, age groupers who earn really good money go to work like they don't have those other stresses that i feel like they're probably got it better than a lot of the guys trying to make it in the pro field so oh 100 when you when you'll get your check each week and 
being an employee is having done it for a while for before triathlon it was a lot less stressful than being a pro in many respects and it's funny i was chatting to an up-and-comer the other day and he was a bit down about having an injury and he's like i just thought you know i'd put this year or two in and then i'd be able to do what steve did and just go full time and i'm like steve didn't go full time he was answering phones at night he was working side jobs. There was no like just jump off a cliff into full-time triathlon. Steve just incrementally, I'll let you speak for yourself, Steve. <laughs> no, <that's laughs> Incre- incre- incrementally pulled back on work as the results came and the money slowly came. Um, yeah. I think it's not this. I think people look at Instagram and think, oh, how good would it be to be Steve? And you're like, he can have that. <laughs> yeah, I'm fucking hating life. <laughs> no, I actually, I, I, I pulled back on coaching and quit my job in the call center um, when I DNF'd in Cairns. So it was actually a really bad result that made me um, do it because I was doing, as you know, really like 70 hours outside of triathlon on other crap, which was uni. Um, I'd be sitting in a server at like 1am manning the door for this guy. And I didn't want to go home after because so I'd knock off at eleven or twelve at the call center. Had to finish an assignment or do a bit of coaching. So I'd go to the server across the road from my apartment, and he would it would be not not very busy. And he'd go, "Mate, can you just yell out if someone comes in?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." So I'm like an employee of the on the run the petrol <laughs> station, and I don't want to go home and wake up Lauren because we're getting up at six a.m. the next day. So I get up with her after four hours sleep and do it all again. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. I, rem- I still remember when I was an age grouper, but finishing, I'd do uni, then I'd go straight to washing dishes in a restaurant, finish at 11 p.m. and then go do my one, one hour run at 11 p.m. And like people were like, oh, you're so lucky. And you're like, no, you create your own luck. So yeah. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> I couldn't do that yeah. now though. I'm, I'm like, nah, me 5, neither. PM, 5 p.m. <laughs> I turn the phone off most yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how spoiled you get. I, I really have the the dis- like to go and train after 6 p.m now i'm like Phew, that's a bit rough the sun's going down i'd be able to sleep yeah part of the um part of the segment question was then also age groupers that should have gone pro and clint you're someone that's won your age group before at ironman australia right like did that come into your mind like no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I'll expand on that a bit. Um, no, I, I trained with a fair few guys who were pro, and one. I mean, I think the last ten minutes explained why not to go pro. But, um, <laughs> no, I, I had different goals. I wanted to do well at Ironman. Like I, I wanted to, as an age group, we go like ideally go top ten at Ironman Australia, but. I, I wouldn't have been talented enough. I could have gone to, like, he could have made money and, and made it work in Asia maybe. But I also saw the specific demands of being good at it. Like, it's a pretty simple equation, right? You know, what you've got to do or how to, like, the work you've got to do to get there, are you willing to do it? And the sacrifices and the answer is no, I wasn't. Like, and there's no way I was going to go and do swim squads every single morning to get to a level where it was um yeah I, I was in in the pack for the swim so the uh, answer's no <laughs> yeah everyone wants to be a pro until they come to a training camp with a pro yeah <laughs> and they're like 
and the third yeah, that's, session that's, every day when you're like, we're up to five hours today. Are you sure we're doing another session? You know, I, I really <laughs> like. I really enjoy that side of things when there's the company. Like, I love going and doing training sessions with Reedy and stuff like that. But I think like a good example was one of the first trips that Reedy and I did away together was we went to China, and it's so lonely. Like, especially for someone like Reedy, who like he had his family at home. Like I had Emma at home, obviously, but like his kids missing him, you know, you basically got to lay around and do nothing to maximize the result. And then, yeah, you just. I remember, I remember being quite significantly depressed when I'd be away um, sometime. And it would show in your racing, especially the last year or two that I was over there. Uh, It's really hard, Steve. Mm. Yeah, I actually, um, before that LA try last, was it two years ago? And that's why this no last year I did. That's why I didn't travel this year because I, I knew how traumatic um, nine weeks away from young Winnie and um, and Lauren was. I can't deal with the time away, and that's why I'm going to be called a domestic athlete that does world champs every year. Um, and that's that's absolutely fine. I'm not. Hey, Burks has made a career out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's not a bad way to be. Like it's yeah. A, I, yeah, it's um, it like I don't think I retired early, but uh, it definitely contributed to my me wanting to finish up was I all my sponsors were overseas based so I had to be overseas and it was getting harder and harder with family so did you ever um, do you ever cry because I I got on the I tried to get on the bike before LA try for like a a third hour and a half or hour ride just to like I think on the Thursday before the race and I was I just started crying I was like oh my god I got four weeks left over here yeah and I just couldn't get on the bike the only time I cried was when I went training with you and we're like five hours into a ride. And I was like, is this guy ever going to stop talking? <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember getting pretty upset. Like it was pretty hard because especially your kids want to chat to you for the first week on a, on us on Skype or Zoom or whatever you're on. And then um, <laughs> Zoom, I mean, FaceTime, <laughs> didn't set up a business meeting with them. Um, it. Yeah, and then they're just they're off it. They're, it's and I would get back, and my middle son Artie, and I've shared this before. Like he really loves routine. He likes predictability, and he wouldn't talk to me for two weeks after I got back. And it wasn't until COVID that he first ever said that he loved me. He's like seven, six, seven years old, and he would just despise me because I was the guy that messed up their whole family routine. So, and now we're you know as close as ever. We do something together most days um but it's hard on everyone so yeah don't go pro <laughs> yeah. so, so when, when age groupers say oh i can only train 20 hours a week as opposed to 24 just uh pump the brakes on the company okay there's a lot of other things going on yeah would you say as well that anyone that goes like let's say i say to you ready hey ready i'm gonna go pro so i need to do pro shit like the only way to 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 do correct me if I'm wrong. The only way to do that is to give up everything almost immediately. Like you can't manage, can, can you? You can't really manage a full time job and try and go pro and triathlon, right? I'll go, uh, I'll answer that one for you, Danny, and then Reed can chime in. Um, oh, got think, it. No, get you go. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, you've got to um, you've still got to make everything like everything else in life work to a a varying degree, right? And so you said about me going pro. There's no like. I reckon at certain points in the year, I was very much pro, but that was at the expense of other things in life, be it like I'd say to Emma, you know, um, eight weeks out from a race, I'm going to be useless until after this race. But after that, then I'll be back to being a normal human. And we're 
same with work. I'd let work go at that point. I'd be the worst at that point. I was an electrician, the worst electrician ever, wouldn't answer calls, whatever, because you were so tunnel vision with what you were doing. But then I'd, you'd go back to getting a little bit of once the race that you cared about was over, you'd go back to to caring about the other things and care less about triathlon where with triathlon, if you want to go pro, I think it's like you have to, it has to be a priority. You have to probably not be as social a lot of the year, a lot of the year. You have to make that your priority a lot more than when you're an age group. Be it like daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, it has to be your main focus compared to age groupers can have a bit more balance and not have triathlon as their focus for the majority of the year. And Clint, yeah. that's that's the main lack of motivation for me lately. Long season, being a selfish prick, that's uh, that's the biggest um, probably uh, I don't know ick for me at the moment. I'm like desperately wanting to not care that last night I was up from two to three for you know same as every night for the last six months, unless grandma and grandpa have taken Winnie, and I'm just so sick of that um, of caring that that's happening. Um, yeah. I just want to be able to help without actually um um being pissed off that it's happening like you know it's just she can't help it she's just a child um so yeah stuff like that like i want to be um less i don't want to care about diet so much or the this beer after a heat session is going to be way worse than i you know i don't want to care about that for some time of the year and if you have a long season that's why i've got lack, uh, that lack of motivation right now as well because you're just sick of constantly yeah. having to think like that and everything what you eat what you yeah like stressing about about lost sleep yeah i remember just beating myself up if i would eat the wrong food um you like you got to be it's an it's it's not just a full-time job it's like a 24 7 job and there are a lot of perks and don't get me wrong not complaining but it's hard mentally is it can be quite draining to be at an elite level because you have to think about every little aspect of your life so yeah i i uh I think to Clint for, I still think for athletes though, you know, when you say, do you need to go all in? I, I don't think many athletes should go all in. I think if you've got the talent, you should be able to see great improvements in those first few years working part-time because you will not make it if you don't have money coming through. Um, but that, that you have to sacrifice. Like uh, people know me as, especially in my peak years, I was quite a big drinker. <laughs> ironically but on the way up man i didn't drink for like five years until i was making it as a pro because i couldn't afford to lose a day not feeling fantastic the next day um it's yeah and then stupidly yeah drank not not heaps but just you know would celebrate after races and whatever else whereas that just wasn't a part of my life when i was on the way up um, well, nor could it be really right because no it couldn't you don't have that leeway yeah no exactly yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're crushing too many people's dreams, so maybe we should move yeah. on to the next segment. <laughs> so, for the next segment, Reedy's going to run us through some potentially negative impacts of ibuprofen and sodium citrate. Yeah, so I had a bit of a weird run where last week we did the – was it last week we did the podcast or two weeks ago? Um, Jeez, that went quick. Yeah, so I was really crook even for that podcast. I 
dumped a heap of anti-nausea meds to get through it. I'd be, I vomited for about five or six days, just on and off. Couldn't really do much. And also I've got a stress fracture. So I was in a boot, which um, I don't know if anyone's ever worn these boots before, but they are the dumbest thing ever invented. So one is that it's about 10 centimetres higher than the other foot. And so you are going to mess up the rest of your body if you're walking around in that thing. It just doesn't make any sense. Someone could design something very quickly to sort that out. You just have to level out the, the feet, wear a big sandal that's 10 centimetres on the other foot. Anyway, so my back's gone. I'm vomiting, but I'm in a lot of pain with my back, which is – so I'm taking probably two lots of ibuprofen a day. And we. I just was – I went to Pete Murray's wedding. I was so crook. I put on a brave face and tried to get through it. Obviously, didn't drink. I'm not drinking anyway, but um, – uh, just the next day I was even rougher and we're driving back from Southwest Rocks and I said to Monica, I think I need to go to hospital. This is not good. Like I'm, I'm in a lot of stomach pain and I just feel so bad. Anyway, I got into hospital and my, um, I don't know how to say the word, glomular filtration rate of my kidneys was at 17, which it should be closer to 100. And so my kidneys had basically shut down with it. And uh, so then I, they moved me to Lismore Hospital straight away, a few days there under you know, IV fluids and getting back to health. Um, and what they think it was, was actually with the antinausia meds, which slow the digestion a lot, um, plus the ibuprofen and being super dehydrated, that they think the ibuprofen gave me a severe kidney injury. And even now I'm only still at about 50% of what is normal for me. Um, so I can't really train or anything until it comes back, but it's looking like it will return to close to normal. But it made me really think about, ibuprofen and i was always very aware that in hot races especially where you know where you're almost certainly going to get to a level of dehydration ibuprofen is probably one of the dumber things you can take as a pain relief late into a race and i know a huge percentage of athletes do but the way it works is it's so hard on the kidneys but it also can cause gut permeability issues where it's it's just not something you want to take unless you're at rest and really well hydrated. Um, it is a very effective painkiller. Don't get me wrong, but if you're if you're in the need of painkillers, which really I think in racing you should just be toughing it out. But if you need something, it should be Panadol, um, because yeah, you can you can mess yourself up as I found out even from just taking it twice a day for my back while having a vomiting bug. Um, and so the interesting thing too, that also got me thinking about um, sodium citrate as well. Um, we're talking about hydrating well in races. And one of the biggest dangers, people can really also mess up their kidneys by taking on too much salt when they're super dehydrated or, or too little because you can't hydrate well enough. So the problem with a lot of sports hydration products at the moment and sports fuel is they use sodium citrate. And we have touched on this before. But sodium citrate is essentially less acidic on the gut. You can't taste how much salt you're having. So you can actually take on way more than you would if it was sodium chloride. Because if you had sodium chloride, you just vomit back up if you were having too much. But with sodium citrate, it doesn't, you don't know you've had too much till it hits your kidneys and you're pickling your kidneys in a hot race. But I used to, I had a very faulty sweat test um, early on in my career, which was they use those sweat patches, which are, I've now done lots of tests with them and realized that they are a complete waste of time. They not they work very wildly among people and super inaccurate. And 
the sodium citrate the problem is if you don't know your sodium concentration and you're dumping too much sodium citrate into your gut you won't know that you've got a problem until your kidneys are really messed up and there was a heap of races in asia where i would get back to my hotel room and then vomit through the night because i was super dehydrated from taking on way too much salt not enough fluid because of the sodium citrate products now i do think sodium citrate has its place but you need to know your sodium um, concentration of your sweat to make it a safe option if you don't know stick with products which are mainly sodium chloride because your taste will tell you if you're having too much or too little sodium citrate is ah and not just to sell i don't really care but we i did because of all this i did pull the pin on buying a um sweat a sodium concentration tester uh testing machine which is not cheap but i don't want to see other people making the mistake i did through my career um and essentially it's what they use for kids who have cystic fibrosis in hospital you just put a you apply a lotion and a patch and you can de- get your um get the sodium concentration of the sweat without even having to go and do like a one hour session or anything like that so there's a really easy way to know and adjust your race nutrition and training nutrition um and funnily enough for people that people think oh well i don't really sweat that much or i don't have any issues with cramping i think my sodium concentration is low it's just as important to get tested because if your sodium concentration is low that means you can actually take on more carbohydrate the two compete for entry into the cell so it's uh it's important to know whether you're high or whether you're low or whether you're average um and that was a long-winded way of saying we are doing testing in Bustleton if people want to jump on board I've only got four or five spots left I only want to do a day of it um so if you're interested email me at tim at rpg coaching I won't do anything crazy to overhaul your race nutrition but I will have some things there to slightly tweak it if we know that it needs tweaking um but that was a a long-winded monologue sorry guys (laughs) one one quick and we'll keep it quick but one thing there Reedy. how much do you think those um days of racing in asia racing like just burying yourself in hawaii and all that all those years of being a try mad dog how much do you think that has affected your like the issue now and then also your bounce back in the kids? yeah so that's what we're testing a lot now see how how much i get back to baseline um their suspicion is that it certainly hasn't been a good thing because um every time you give your kidneys a smashing they do bounce back but let's say you start at 100 percent you might bounce back to 98 and then the next time you bounce back to 96 your baseline and what your kidneys can withstand sort of drops because you get you know sort of cell death within the kidneys um so i'm pretty worried about it if i'm honest i think it i think i have lowered my uh, um kidney baseline so we'll we'll see how it goes but i'm certainly going to be looking after them from now on lots of just staying hydrated um, making sure my electrolyte mixes us bang on for what I need and not just guesswork. So all right, we're gonna run through a few fan questions now. First question: tips for how to pee on the bike during long training days without actually stopping. Clint? <laughs> don't do it <laughs> yeah. that's uh like, pull over that and would, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that would be like a hundred percent trifrost there so i'm assuming that maybe it's uh during races we'll go with that no right? no no let's stick with training i do okay. think there is a strategy here because oh, you have yeah. some people cannot 
cannot do it. I say go out on a really wet day. When it's a really wet day and it's pouring rain, that's your time to shine. Just learn to let the bladder go. (laughs) So, yeah, one thing actually, like both, not that we condone peeing on race courses because it's not allowed, but it makes it, you've got to relax your core to both do a pee like when you're running or riding. So, yeah, I think you're probably on the mark there, Reedy. If you want to actually practice it, so you're willing to do it on race day. Wait till you have one of those sessions where it's pouring rain. Get out there when you're rolling downhill. Potentially stop pedaling, sit up. Just think about slow running water. Relax yeah. your core and let it go. Um, you got to make the sound with your mouth as you go. That's <laughs> <laughs> like really helps. That you can also the- relax the cheeks and you just go. <laughs> <laughs> you can also just have a bucket next to your trainer. And pee in a bucket. <laughs> but uh, to, to, to directly answer the question, I don't actually think there's a real good way of doing it during training. But uh, do, during races, yeah, it, it, downhill, downhill before aid stations, so you can clean yourself up a little bit and just be just be ready to mentally delete that twenty seconds of your race. So you oh, and also have someone in. behind you that you don't like. Well, that's it. Can also, yeah, we will address that too. It can also be used as a uh, Mario Kart type defense mechanism. <laughs> if, if anyone's too close, then that is definitely the go-to to just stand up and release. And if it's like it's your human version of Race Ranger. All right, <laughs> yeah, if they're inside the twelve, they're going to get showered, and if they're not, then they won't know what's happening. <laughs> Clint, did you say it's against the rules in a race to technically do it? Yeah, yeah. It is. Is. is it really, it, Danny? Yeah, you knew that. No. <laughs> I actually did not know that because, I, I mean, I'd do it four times in a race. Like, Don't any of the races so that he can pee on himself. <laughs> but, yeah, it's against the rules. But if it was to happen on race day, you're best off doing it. Pre-aid station so you can use your half-empty bottles to clean yourself up or you can go through the aid station and clean yourself up. Full stop. What's a favorite run session you do one month out from a 70.3 or an Ironman? Uh, I, I like the most ones that I like. You're probably like the, the exact pace that you'll run, maybe plus five or 10 seconds per K. Um, just getting used to that pace. Now, it's usually, it usually is about five or 10 seconds slower, actually, but it's it's around that effort. Um, and then just like go from... Uh, Reedy's often put in like three times seven minutes and then it will go to eight, nine, and then you just a whole half an hour and then sometimes longer if it's, especially if it's an Ironman. And I feel I've run the best off of those preps where I've done specific pacing um, and haven't gone as well on, you know, harder running, uh, you know, paces where I'm not actually, which I'm not going to actually run in the race. It's really interesting, Steve, because all the data would say VO2 max, and zone two really works well for getting your run going, but I'm exactly the same. I would always run best after several weeks of, especially just that little bit below anaerobic threshold. I feel like pushing it up works a lot better than pulling it up, like working above it. Um, I think the key difference there is your risk of injury is a lot lower too. Um, and you can back it up, but I used to, especially with Matt Dixon, I used to really extend out those sort of threshold sessions um and it worked quite well so you know sometimes you read all the studies and i'm like yeah but i just see another way working way better in practice so Mm. um 
And it probably doesn't affect your bike legs as much if you're running at a slower, but it's close enough. Yeah. There's something about, yeah, not forcing it too. So um, that five seconds or 10 seconds per K, because it's right on the cusp of what's hard and what's just quite comfortably sustainable, but solid. Um, there's a fine line there and you see it even when you look at lactate and um, carbohydrate metabolism or whatever it is, it's, you know, certainly not linear. It's, it goes to a certain point and then there's a five to 10 seconds per K range that can make all the difference between being super stressful or stressful, but absorbable. The Ironman specific run that um, I actually adopted from you giving it to me, Reedy, way back when is like the overspeed into Ironman intensity. Um, <laughs> a little bit less, like I think it, it puts everyone's ego in perspective a little bit. Like they go and run probably a bit harder than they should through like this, say maybe a 6K at like 10 to 15 seconds quicker than Ironman pace and then just a couple of K reset and then actually try to dial in your Ironman intensity. Um, that's probably my go-to session. And then for 70.3 brick, so I like standard 2Ks on very short rest because most races are um, 2Ks between aid stations. So you can just kind of stop, hydrate, stay on top of it and go again. Yeah, just to expand on that first one, um, in terms of the physiological benefits of that session of going over speed and then in specific that, that a lot of it is to teach people like sometimes the reason I do things is to teach people why they shouldn't do that in the race because yeah. suddenly th then going to Ironman pace after doing seven or eight K well above pace, they realize, Oh shit, this Ironman pace is so hard after doing that. Um, so it's almost teach. There are, you know, there's benefits of doing the session, but a lot of it's about like, this is why we we're not going to go out and do that in the race. Um, it's important, especially with blokes who ego just gets out of hand, including myself every time I race. So it's, um, yeah, that that's part of the reason is for coaches who are like, why would you do that? It's like to teach them a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> How impressive was Dan Plew's sub eight performance at Ironman California reading? Oh, I thought it was great. I think, you know, you're going to have your haters out there. And it's like, oh, it's not a true sub eight. It's a downriver swim and blah, blah. But what is a true sub eight? I mean, you've got athletes in Europe riding with 15 motorbikes alongside them, saving 25 watts the whole ride. Is that a sub eight? Or is now that we've got shoes that make you go, you know, like it's all arbitrary stuff that I don't really think matters. Um, I think Dan's, Dan's probably the first one. He's not, he would know, okay, cool, it's probably not as legit a sub-8 as what other people would call it. He, he, but it's also great marketing. He's turning into a smart businessman. He knows it's great for his business. But more importantly than that, it's still a really fast time. You know, he would have a lot on his plate. He's got kids. He's going faster than ever. And I, I just think, you know, the whole sub-8 thing, whatever. But the fact was it was still an amazing race and good on him. He's a big fan of the show. I know he's listening. Big shout out, Dan. Well done. <laughs> two, two things that were really uh, – he put out his power numbers on the bike and it was – they were really – I don't remember what it was, but I remember being very impressed by it. And then also mm. his execution of the run, sub eight, over eight, whatever it is, fast swim. His execution on the run was like pretty much bang on per 10 Ks within about 20 or 30 seconds. So it was, yeah, super impressive. Um, the execution side of things regardless of the time so the only other thing i was going to add is 
sure, it might be a little bit of a marketing stunt to pull off that sub eight or anything else. But like, if I had a scalable product like Endure IQ, which hopefully one day we do, I'm going to be pulling shenanigans like that all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> there's going to be, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's clever. I think people do get inspired by it, and they know that he is. You know, people can bang on, oh, he's a full time. He's pretty much a pro. I, I really don't see how he could be. He's got too much on his plate. I bet you he's balancing a lot, and I'd be surprised if the mileage, the volume is really that high. So um, sorry to cut you off there, Denny. Oh, no, I was just going to say, just to flesh that out further with with other performances, you know, world-breaking performances for pros and stuff. You know, I've asked Steve many times over the years, like, oh, what time do you think you'll do? And he's just like, I, I don't care. Like, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. I just want to win sort of thing. So... You know, like some of those American races that have seen pop up in the last couple of months, you know, these these 70.3s where they do three hours 30 to win and then you look and the swim was like 17 minutes because they're just in a downstream bloody, you know, waterfall sort of thing. So it just doesn't mean anything right at the top end especially. It's one thing that it really doesn't. winds me yeah. up so much as a coach when people come to you with time-based goals like sometimes it's great like when there's you know they're at the end of their racing and they want to go and tick that box or whatever so they can talk about it when they're 80 but like when someone comes to you with like their first race and they want to talk about times it's just it's not the way to attack um execution of a race it should be about dosing your effort as well as you can however we decide to do it and that never works with times every course is too different to say you've got a pb in this sport as well yeah, mm. and- even it's just the conditions whether they measure the swim accurately. It's just silly. So, yeah. um, <laughs> I I've always felt like, you know, instead of, there's a lot of kudos attached to sub eight, sub nine, sub ten. I think Ironman should bring in some sort of reward system, but it's based on, oh, you finished in the top twenty percent of the field or the top forty percent, or you know whatever it is. It's got to be more relative to the field as a so maybe you get a you know like like the belt buckle system of whatever the ultra is that they get a gold buckle if they've done sub whatever it should be a you get a massive belt gold belt yeah. buckle if you're in the top five percent the outlaw triathlon <laughs> just, club mate it should yeah. I always I always used to aim for, to be in the top one percent uh, yeah. like the triathlon mm-hmm. outlaw if you're in the top, did you get a, top did you get a buckle you should you should be in the top if you get in the top one percent they should send you a mad one percent yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hat, and, hat and some yeah. riding boots yes. <laughs> <laughs> <And> wild bull <laughs> <laughs> all right last question who would win in a street fight between steve and danny and the only weapon is a baguette steve how old how old is the baguette Oh, it's a good question. Let's let's say it's yeah. been sit, sitting there for a month. Wow. Yeah, the weapon. problem is, I love bread. I'll probably eat mine, and you'd win. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, as well, like I was a cereal dobber when I was when I was younger, so I'd probably just run to mum and say Steve's attacking me with a baguette, and you'd get you'd get in trouble. So <laughs> I'm going to probably answer. time be left home, Denny. <laughs> <laughs> Never, never. <laughs> Depending on what part of the season you got, Steve, he'd be pretty easy picking late in the season, yeah. but early on yeah. he'd probably still have that anger inside him to fight. <laughs> yeah, him. exactly. I, I hate to talk Steve up in this moment, but um, people probably don't know that he was like a extremely good state-level hockey player as well, So, and he's pretty ah. handy at golf because of that. So I dare say with some sort of a hard stick, he's going to 
connect over my head before I do his. So. Did you just put up the white flag, Danny? Yeah. 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 I'm going to go dog. So. Yeah, he's a pansy. He's a pansy. <laughs> Steve's got Steve's got some real anger. So yeah. I could see it. It would start out as a friend, like tap, tap with the baguette. And then Steve Steve would get a little clip on the nose or something. And I could just see Steve. Hard. Suddenly there's just blood everywhere. And Danny's on the ground, just <laughs> dying a painful death. Yeah. Baguette through the heart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I reckon that's the best way we can possibly finish the episode. Leave it with that quality. Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. Cheers, guys. It's always a joy. And it's good to have you on, Steve. Yeah. Glad to see that you've got the joy back in your eyes. (laughs) Yeah.